Hello, Glenn Scrivener here. Great to be with you. And a big shout out to the marina and to uh, the villas and to Shoreham and to Oasis. Uh, great to be with you as we think about these verses from Matthew's gospel. We're in a series called The Way of the Master as we consider the teaching of Jesus. How amazing to have the words of Jesus preserved here. And we want God to speak them again directly to our hearts by His Spirit. So let's listen up as Jesus teaches us on this issue. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. What's Jesus gonna help us with this morning? He's gonna help us answer this question. What is life? Is life a feast or a fast? Is life about abundance or about scarcity? Is life about joy or about sorrow? Is life about fullness or about emptiness? Should we expect feasting or fasting in life? Different churches feel different ways when you go to them. You know, some churches, it feels like a party. Some churches, it feels like a funeral. Uh, some churches, you feel like you couldn't really confess to your weakness and to your sin, to doubt. You couldn't really share your struggles and suffering because people would just tell you to live the victorious life. In some churches, it can be like that. In, in some churches, you never feel like Christ actually won the victory. Just this morning, a friend told me of a church where she grew up and uh, they sang the song, It Is Well With My Soul by Horatio Spafford, which I think is a terrific hymn that captures the balance between feasting and fasting. Uh, you might know that the song, uh, Horatio Spafford wrote it in the midst of losing his wife and children at sea. And in the midst of tremendous suffering, he wrote that wonderful chorus, Whatever My Lots, Thou Hast Taught Me To Say, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul. And yet at this church that my friend grew up in, they changed the words of the chorus. They didn't sing, it is well with my soul. They asked it as a question, is it well with my soul? Is it well with my soul? Is it well, is it well with my soul? Um, which is a, a horrendous kind of upending of everything the hymn is trying to do because it's trying to tell you in the midst of your emptiness, there is a fullness. It is on offer. It seems to me like that hymn gets the balance about rights. But in my friend's church, they were constantly asking the question, is it well with my soul? They didn't know. And so they wallowed in that doubt, wallowed in that emptiness. You can find churches that are like this. Some churches are all fast. Some churches are all feast. Some churches are all about emptiness. Some churches are all about fullness. What's right? What is the right kind of church to have? Well, in these verses, Jesus will teach us. He'll also teach us what should we expect in life? Because some people expect life to be one long feast. It's always about being filled, being filled with food, 
being filled with money and resources and energy and achievements and experiences. And if that's our expectation, we might be setting ourselves up for a bit of a disaster. If we are always constantly expecting to be full, that's one kind of temperament. But then there's another kind of temperament because some people, they fear being full. Some people never want to be full. Some people hate the idea of being full, being full of food, but also being full of people and experiences. Some people are constantly fearful that life is too much and they always want to strip back and strip back and strip back. There are different temperaments in this world and some people are more feasters and some people are more fasters. Which are you? Which is right? Well, in four verses here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, we're going to see Jesus answer the question, should we be feasters or should we be fasters? In a word, Jesus answers, yes. Yes, we are to be feasters and we are to be fasters. And to give you a sense of why that's the case, I just want to run through where we've got to in Matthew's gospel and show you that since the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching this point about fasting and feasting, about emptiness and fullness. And what he's teaching here is the culmination of everything that's been happening in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've got a Bible, you'll, you'll see the heading just says, Jesus cleanses a leper. Do you know that story? There is a leper running to Jesus, a leper in all his uncleanness, in all his need. And he runs to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what is this an experience of? Well, he is all emptiness and Christ is all fullness. I am willing, be clean, he says. Emptiness meets fullness. You can see the next heading in chapter eight, verse five, the faith of a centurion. Think of who the centurion is. He is an enemy of God's people. He is outside the covenant family of God, a Gentile enemy of God who is desperate for help. And Jesus meets him in his need. Though the centurion says he is totally unworthy, Jesus nonetheless meets him with fullness. And then in verse 14, you'll see the heading. It just says, Jesus heals many. And again, this is a picture of what it is like to live in the kingdom. There are people who are sick, desperately sick. People who've been passed around from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. Nothing has helped. They are ravaged. They are weakened. And they come to Jesus in all their need. And he meets them with fullness, with healing. From verse 18 of chapter 8, we get kind of a cautionary tale. This is how not to approach Jesus. From verse 18, you get a couple of people coming up to Jesus. They are the scribes. They are the disciples. They are full of their own obedience, full of their own strengths and abilities, and Jesus sends them away. Come to Jesus strong and you'll be sent away empty. Come to Him empty and you'll be filled. That's what these verses are telling us. From chapter 8, verse 23, we have Jesus calming a storm. There are storm-tossed seafarers who are fearing for their lives and they have to wake Jesus. And Jesus meets their needs with His all-sufficiency. Chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus heals two men with demons. Here are these demonized men, pariahs in their own communities, but they are set free by Jesus. 
loved by Jesus. They bring their emptiness, He brings His fullness. In chapter nine, verse one, Jesus heals a paralytic. Again, think of that man, utterly helpless. He has to be carried, helpless, paralyzed, carried, and then forgiven and healed. Emptiness meeting fullness. Or you think of chapter nine, verse nine. Here is Matthew's own story. How, how beautiful that Matthew kind of inserts himself in. Here is this little sort of Hitchcock style cameo. He is in his own story as this tax collector. And of course, tax collectors back in the day, they were like arms dealers, white collar criminals who by nature are sinners, by nature they are hated by the people who are around them. And yet here is Matthew plucked from rebellion and called by Jesus to belong at the heart of God's people. And of course, the fact that he records this shows how far up he has been lifted by Jesus. He goes from being a tax collector to being an author of a biblical book. Matthew brings emptiness. Jesus brings fullness. Why? Chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is a doctor for the spiritually sick. He is not a rewarder of the spiritually healthy, but a doctor for the spiritually sick. He brings all healing, we bring all sickness. If you come to Jesus full of strengths, you'll be sent away. Like if I go into the GP surgery and I say, uh, I just thought you'd like to know I'm a picture of perfect health, um, the doctor will send you away. You're wasting their time. You know, that, that's why if you're anything like me, you save up all your illnesses until you have at least 17 before you go to the doctor because you don't want the doctor to say, well, that's nothing, that's nothing, that's nothing. Why are you bothering me? Doctors are for sick people and Jesus is for sinners, only for sinners. The atmosphere in a church should not be like, it should not be like the, the, the waiting room for a job interview. You know, in the waiting room for a job interview, Tim Keller uses this uh, illustration. When you're waiting for a job interview and you've got the other prospective candidates, you're trying to put on your best show, aren't you? You're, you're trying to look capable. You're, you're, you're trying to look like you can do it. But actually a, a church should not look like candidates for a job interview, always projecting strength. We should be far more like the waiting room of a GP surgery. You know, in a GP surgery, if you're not coughing, you start to pretend to cough, don't you? Just because just you don't want to look like you're wasting other people's time. You don't come projecting your strengths. You come owning your weaknesses. What should a church be like? A church should be like the weak who come to the doctor, the empty who come to the one who is all fullness. We come to Jesus in our emptiness and He fills us. But as Jesus is teaching this message about the kingdom, this is rocking everyone's world. Jesus is not a safe religious leader. He has not come from heaven with a message about how to make good people better. He comes from heaven with a message that you are not a good person needing to get better. You are a lost person needing to get saved. You're a sick person needing to get healed. You're an empty person who needs to be filled. You are even a dead person who needs to be raised. You bring nothing to the equation. He brings everything. Now that message is going to shock all the respectable religious establishment because human religion runs on plans 
and programs and processes. It's all about good people getting better. And here are the six rules you need to keep. But it's not about rules. It's about resurrection. If it was about rules, then it's about the strong getting stronger. If it's about resurrection, it's about the weak getting help. Desperately, they need help from above and Christ must do everything. So as we think about the people of the kingdom, Matthew's gospel has been teaching us the people of the kingdom are the weak, the sick, the empty, the outsiders, the sinners who know their desperate need. Now we turn to verse 14 and we start asking the question about what are are the practices of the kingdom? Which practices are going to belong to this kind of kingdom? And here again, Jesus is going to shock us. Verse 14, chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now you can tell that Jesus is really shocking people because he has provoked two very different kinds of people to have the same question. The Pharisees and John's disciples were not naturally found together. It would be like having a coalition government of the Greens and UKIP, right? Can you imagine, like, like these people do not naturally get on. The Pharisees and John's disciples, if you'd been reading through Matthew's gospel in chapter three, you hear John the Baptist speaking of the Pharisees in chapter three, verse seven, as you brood of vipers, right? That, that's how the disciples of John feel about the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. The ax is at the root of the tree. You're going to get chopped down, you Pharisees. These guys, they hate each other normally. They are not usually on the same team, but somehow they, they have something in common. What do they have in common? Well, they both fast. They both deal with this spiritual practice of, of fasting. In fact, we know that the, the, the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week. So Luke chapter 18, verse 12 tells us they fasted twice a week. And you can read in Josephus that, that they actually fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. So you, you thought the 5-2 diet was just a modern phenomenon. No, it's a very ancient thing. On Monday, they fast. On Thursday, they fast, which is fascinating because back in the Old Testament, do you know how often you're meant to fast in the Old Testament? Under Old Testament law, you are meant to fast once a year. Once a year, right? On the Day of Atonement, you fast. That's the only time that the law actually commands you to fast. You can do other voluntary fasts, of course, but the only time that the Bible actually commands you to fast in the Old Testament is in this once a year practice on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees, they want to go 104 times more spiritual than the law of God. hundred. 104 times more spiritual than the law of God. And Jesus actually makes fun of them in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, back in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually says that they disfigure their faces so that they look weak, so that they look somber on their day of fasting, so that everybody will know they are making this great show of their fasting. And they think that this is a great mark of true spirituality. So the Pharisees fasted in a certain kind of way, But also the disciples of John fasted in a certain kind of way. And they're not not the same. And Jesus, his, his rebuke to them will be very different. But nonetheless, Jesus wants to address both and tell them that they're not quite getting it right because Jesus himself came eating and drinking. Luke chapter seven, verse 36, Jesus says, the son of man came eating and drinking. He is a great feaster 
even as he begins his ministry with fasting. But all, all the other people see, all, all that the public sees is this public feasting. Even though in private, in the wilderness, he goes out and fasts. So Jesus does not fit people's mold. He, he doesn't fit their expectation of what a holy man should do. A holy man should fast and look like he's fasting, right? How come Jesus wasn't? Well, to answer that question, Jesus uses three analogies. He takes us to the wedding reception. He takes us to the seamstress. He takes us to the winery. And he'll teach people why it is that he and his disciples are not at this moment fasting. Verse 15, here we are at the wedding reception. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So can you imagine someone arriving at a wedding reception, looking somber and refusing to eat? Um, there are a number of reasons why they might be doing that. One is maybe they got the time wrong. They came to the church at the wrong time of day and they were expecting a funeral and, oh goodness, there's actually a wedding going on. They, they just didn't realize that the time had shifted, that the funeral had been replaced by a wedding. And that's kind of John's disciples. That's their situation. They have been fasting in anticipation for the bridegroom, for the Messiah, for the Savior, for Jesus. They've been waiting for Jesus and they've been doing an appropriate thing for those waiting to see the bridegroom face to face. They, they fast. They haven't quite yet grappled with the fact that the bridegroom has come and he's standing there right in front of them. So they've, they've got the timing wrong. And that's one way you might show up to a wedding and be fasting inappropriately. There's another way that you might show up to a wedding and be fasting inappropriately. Um, imagine that a woman arrives conspicuously at a wedding and she makes sure that everybody sees her and she is dressed all in black, like Jackie Kennedy at JFK's funeral. Can you imagine it? Black dress, black hat, black veil, black handkerchief, which she dabs at her eyes between sobs. This is a wedding. What is she, what is she doing acting like this? At the reception, you pass her a slice of wedding cake and she said, I couldn't possibly, there is no time for celebration now. As she wails loudly through the bridegroom's speech, what would you think about this faster? This faster is doing something very different. This is like the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like that woman who is being very inappropriate at the wedding. And if you met that woman at that wedding, you'd think, uh-oh, this is a jealous ex, isn't it? She's wanting to disturb things. She has it in for the bridegroom. This is a very different kind of disturbance because weddings, look, weddings are not about fasting. They're about feasting. And if this woman is fasting, she is relating badly to the wedding or even more, she's relating very badly to the husband, to the bridegroom. You don't fast at a wedding. And as soon as Jesus uses this language of wedding and bridegroom, it's a real rebuke to the Pharisees and it's a real announcement to the disciples of John. It's a rebuke to the Pharisees because he's saying, I am the Messiah that was promised. Back in Psalm 45, there is this God from God figure who is the most excellent of all people and he is the bridegroom. He is the one who will marry his bride, his people and bring cosmic harmony and consummation. 
Jesus is announcing himself as the God from God that Psalm 45 speaks of. So he is, he is declaring that to the Pharisees and he's announcing it to John the Baptist and his, his disciples and saying, no, no, I am here. The one you've been waiting for is actually here. And therefore you can enjoy some kind of feasting in this moment as you have your bridegroom in front of you. God's people had been waiting for the time that the bridegroom would come and Jesus is announcing it. Here I am. I am the central figure of this cosmic romance, the cosmic romance between heaven and earth, between God and his people, between Christ and the church. Christ is that central figure, that bridegroom. And he is the one who his wedding feast will be the central act, the, the consummation of a union between God and the world, between heaven and earth. Jesus is making a, a massive claim for himself. He is the bridegroom. He is the Messiah, which means the question is not, why isn't Jesus fasting like all the others? The question is, why aren't the religious feasting with him? That's the big question. The question is not, why isn't Jesus fasting like the religious? The question is, why aren't the religious feasting with him? They have their Messiah right there. He is supposed to be the love of their lives, but they are like the wedding guest who refuses to eat. In fact, it's much worse than that in these verses, isn't it? The Pharisees in particular, they are like, they are like the guards who gatecrash the party and lead away the bridegroom in chains and cast him outside of the feast where there is weeping and wailing and the angry gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus means when he says, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away. He's speaking about this, this very violent moment in the history of God's people where the bridegroom is publicly rejected by those he has come for and where the bridegroom is taken away outside the feast. It's interesting, in Matthew 8 verse 12, Jesus has described hell as an experience of being cast outside of the feast where there is weeping and wailing and the angry gnashing of teeth. Jesus is predicting that he will be taken away in that violent kind of sense. The bridegroom will experience hell for his people. Imagine that scene. Imagine being at the wedding reception and the, the guards rush in and wrench the bridegroom away from his beloved and take him outside. And as he goes out, you realize this is the last time I'll ever see him. It's, it's that kind of thing. It's that violent language. He is going to be taken away. He's going to suffer hell on that cross. Well, why is he going to do that? Well, this is what bridegrooms do for their bride, isn't it? The lover puts himself in the shoes of the beloved. The, the lover enters into the pain and the struggle of the beloved. The lover enters into the emptiness that the beloved might feel. The lover even enters into the sins and the spiritual debts of the beloved and takes them all on himself. This is what Jesus does. Jesus says to us, his beloved, he says, I love you. Let me take your emptiness and give you my fullness. Jesus, the bridegroom on that cross, he is cast out of the feast so that we can be brought in, so that we can enjoy what belongs to him. All of this is predicted in, in just this little verse. The bridegroom will be taken away, taken away for us so that as he is cast out, we can 
be brought in. So when Jesus is taken away like this, that is cause for mourning. And therefore the Christian life is not a continuous feast. There is a time for fasting. And this applies to us today. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, when you fast, do it like this. He doesn't say, if you fast, do it like this. He does say, when you fast, this is how you should do it. There is an expectation in the New Testament for fasting. There is a time for feeling our, our physical distance from Christ. Even though spiritually we are as connected to Jesus as we could possibly be, even though by the Spirit we enjoy Jesus' company right now, physically we are not right now in the direct company of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 puts it like this. He says, one day we'll be face to face, but right now we see through a glass darkly. Do you know that language, 1 Corinthians 13? We see through a glass darkly. Our relationship with Jesus, it's a bit like wearing really smudgy, scratched old sunglasses. One day the sunglasses come off and we see Jesus face to face. It will be better. It will be better by far when we are in the direct company, the direct physical company of Jesus, face to face with Him. And therefore, this is an experience right here, right now of looking through a glass darkly. Therefore, there is a time for feeling our lack. There is a time for feeling our hunger. There is a time for feeling our emptiness. There is a place right now for fasting because we miss Jesus. Here in these verses, I, I think you get two really good reasons why fasting is still something that Christians do today. Fasting is still something that Christians do today for, for these two reasons. I think because the feast is future, the feast is coming, you don't want to spoil your appetite, right? You don't want to fill up on junk food, okay? You're going to this amazing all-you-can-eat buffet and it's your favorite restaurant. Do you spend all afternoon filling up on quavers? You don't, do you? You, you, you discipline yourself. You enter into the hunger of the afternoon, knowing that the evening meal is coming and that there is a time for us to discipline our flesh, so that we don't just fill up on junk food. And I don't, at that point, just mean physical junk food. I mean spiritual junk food. But to enter into a fast now is to experience a disciplining of our flesh. You know, this morning, got a coffee to get onto the train and I made my purchase already, but I just saw the, those um, wafers with the caramel in them. And I just thought, you know, that is a straight shot of carbohydrate right to the gut. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that? And there's, there's something in the West about, I, I am never, I am never out of touch with a sense of physical fullness. I never need to go hungry. I always know where my next meal is coming from. And not just my next meal, I know where my next snack is coming from. And it's probably in my bag, right? And there's something, even, even as I sort of was munching on that, Caramel wafer on the train, thinking over, thinking over this preach. I was thinking to myself, 
you know, I just demanded to be full in that moment. I couldn't bear the thought of being physically empty in that moment because then maybe other feelings of emptiness would rush in at me. Then an experience of my lack would occur to me. And I don't want to feel empty. I don't want to feel empty physically. I don't want to feel empty spiritually. And so I, I refused that opportunity just to have a tiny little fast, right? But when we set aside a day, or when we set aside a couple of meals to, to skip, right? We are disciplining our flesh, saying, I'm not with Jesus now. The fullness is coming. Right now, I can enter into being empty knowing that Jesus and his fullness is enough. Reason number one, why we still fast today, it disciplines our flesh so that we don't fill up on junk food, so that our affections are properly directed towards the coming feast when we'll be face to face with Jesus and we'll have the wedding banquet to end all wedding banquets. Reason number two to fast now, it, it means entering into an experience of missing Jesus. You know, there's a sweetness to the fact that we are missing Jesus right now. And I don't mean that we are missing his spirit and the fullness of his spirit, but I, I do mean that right now we look through a glass darkly and we miss Jesus. We miss being in his personal, direct company. And we want to enter into that experience so that we know where we stand in this world. Jesus prays a wilderness prayer and he teaches us a wilderness prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer? Give us today our daily bread. You know what that's saying? That's saying that you and I are just like the Israelites in the wilderness, walking through the desert. And we're desperate for daily bread to come to us. Otherwise, we perish. And Jesus, as he asks us to pray this, he's asking us to enter into that wilderness experience and to know that the land of milk and honey is yet future. Can we enter into the lack? And can we, can we embrace this, this feeling of missing Jesus? And praying that through, and as we feel the physical hunger, to, to say to Jesus, I miss you. Those are great reasons why today we still fast. But we don't only fast, and we don't only feast. It's feasting and fasting. This is the mistake of John's disciples and the Pharisees. It's often our mistake. They tried to answer the question, should we feast or should we fast? As though it's either or. And the thing that they lacked is they didn't put Jesus at the center of their answer to that question. When you ask why fast, the first thing you should think is, what does Jesus have to say about this? How is Jesus the center of my answer to this question? And if you don't put Jesus at the center, you'll just end up with a patchwork spirituality. Have a look at verse 16. Here is the patchwork spirituality that so many of us have. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, you can't have a patchwork spirituality. You can't do something from John the Baptist and his crew and something from the Pharisees and their crew and something from a podcast I heard a couple of years ago and something from my old church and, and something from this paperback that was really good and something from this conference that I went to once and just kind of weave it together and then think, oh, and, and now how do I bring Jesus into this? You just, you just, that's just a patchwork spirituality and Jesus will never fit into this unless he is the center of it. He's never just gonna be crowbarred into it. You can't have a patchwork spirituality. You've gotta let Jesus be at the center 
and then let, then let the chips fall where they may. You've got to start with Jesus and work out from there. Don't start with, well, my old church always used to do it this way and then try to crowbar Jesus in. It's the same point in verse 17. See, if, if, if uh, clothing repair isn't your thing, Jesus knows how to give a wide range of illustrations. So he takes us from the seamstress to home brewing. Maybe, maybe being a seamstress you can't relate to. Maybe home brewing you can relate to. It's the same point though, verse 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. New wine ferments, but old wineskins, they don't have any elasticity to them. And so as the new wine is fermenting and producing the carbon dioxide, if there's no elasticity to the old wineskin, bang, it all bursts. And Jesus is saying, that is like trying to fit me into your old ways of thinking. See, we think to ourselves, I know what makes people holy, fasting. Oh yeah, I read a book about fasting once. And uh, yeah, my, my old mentor, he used to do fasting like this. And then the last person you consult is Jesus. And then you try to fit Jesus in and Jesus is saying, it's not gonna work. It's just gonna burst. It's gonna go bang. If you wanna be able to handle Jesus, you're gonna have to start all your thinking about spirituality again. But you're gonna have to structure your thinking so that Jesus is at the very center and that everything else you do makes sense of him. So that now if you fast, it's because of Jesus. And now if you feast, it's because of Jesus. And unless you begin with Jesus at the center, your whole, your whole spiritual life goes bang. We must begin again with Jesus, shape all our thinking and speaking and acting around Jesus. That's why I'm so encouraged by you guys as a church. You, you've made one decision and in one sense, it's a tiny little decision about, you know, shall we have wine in our communion services, you know? And in one sense, it's a tiny little decision, but in another sense, it's, it's a determination to think, okay, let's not have a patchwork spirituality. Shall we go back to Jesus and think about what a Jesus-centered spirituality might look like? And you know, maybe people can disagree with the, the steps that are made in, in that conversation, but I think the heart to go back to Jesus and think, you know what, let's start again with Him and let's alter some of the patchwork quilt. Let's, let's alter some of the wineskins in which the new wine is held. It's this, it's this desire to put Jesus at the center of all things because you can't just fit Jesus into a pre-existing system. If you feast, you feast because of Jesus. If you fast, you fast because of Jesus. He is the center. So then what is life? Is life feasting or fasting? Is it fullness or emptiness? Well, the answer is yes. We bring emptiness to the equation. We bring our weakness, our sickness, our uncleanness, our sin. We bring our desperate need and He brings fullness to the equation. He is strong and health-giving and cleansing. He is the Saviour who comes to bring us His fullness, but He does it like a bridegroom. And a bridegroom shares all he has with the bride. He enters into our weakness and we enter into him so that sometimes we enter into fasting as a, a, a remembrance of feeling, uh, feeling that we miss him, as a remembrance of the way in which he has entered into weakness and emptiness. So too do we. But then at other times we, we feast 
Because again, we share in the fullness of the bridegroom. What's our church like? Can we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn? And can we be sensitive to the spirit of Jesus to know when it's appropriate to proclaim the victory of Jesus and when it's appropriate to sympathize with the weakness of the flesh? That will take real sensitivity. There's no one size fits all answer. When someone's in trouble, do you just proclaim the victory of Jesus? Or do you just enter into their experience of weakness in the moment? What, what do you do? Is there one right answer? No, you've got to put Jesus at the center of all your thinking. Be sensitive to the spirit of Jesus and move out from there. Our churches should be feasting and fasting. and Our lives should be feasting and fasting. Do we know that? Do we, do we always insist on being full? Will we always wallow in being empty? Or will we put Jesus at the center of our thinking? Remembering I am weak, Christ is strong. I am sick, he is the doctor. I am empty and Jesus fills me. I have nothing. Jesus is my everything.